0: Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well this evening. I thought it would be fun to mix up things and discuss a few suspected missing 411 cases. As most of you know, I used to cover these types of cases fairly often, but to be honest, I got very busy narrating and sharing all the great stories you guys send in to me. With the help of my good friend, Paige Turner, I'm going to be looking into missing 411 cases rather regularly again. If you have any cases you would like to suggest, Leave them down in the comments below. As most of you already know, Missing 401 1 cases are missing persons cases that meet a specific list of criteria. Aside from clusters of disappearances in one area, the victims were either alone or separated from their group when they vanished. They almost always disappeared in the mid to late afternoon hours, usually in rocky terrain or near a body of water. Weather events are also common occurrences just before or after the incident. Dogs can never find or follow a scent, and in cases where the bodies are located, it's in a previously searched location. In these instances, many victims are missing clothing articles, and medical examiners cannot determine a cause of death. I've researched three cases for the occasion, and if nothing else, I think you'll find the results interesting. Robert Springfield First, I want to tell you about Robert Bugsy Springfield. He went missing on September 19, 2004, in the Bighorn Mountains. He was 48 then, and wasn't the type of person you'd expect to get lost. Robert was Native American, and his family belonged to the Crow Nation Indian Reservation in Montana. Though he was born in Casper, Wyoming, a town almost three hours away, he spent much of his time in the mountains, learning to hunt and live off the land. In high school, he was intelligent, popular, and athletic. He played football and basketball and even continued playing basketball for the Marines after enlisting at 17. A video by Storytelling Imperfectly stated he made it to the Special Forces, which wouldn't surprise me in the least, but there wasn't much information about his military career other than his honorable discharge in 1977. I can tell you he was well traveled and spent a lot of time in Australia, Japan, and the Philippines, but that's about it. After his discharge, Robert enrolled at Billings Vocational Technical School and graduated in 1979. A few months later, he married his wife, Veronica, and they moved to Lodge Grass, Montana, where Robert had attended high school. Don't let these different town names confuse you either. This takes place in a single area near the Montana-Wyoming border, within a few hours of each other. The couple would go on to have two sons. Colton was their biological son, and Brent was adopted, but they were loved and treated equally. Robert seemed to be an all-around good guy. Nothing was more important than his family, and people had great things to say about him. If he had enemies, no one could name them. Because Robert belonged to the Crow Nation, He had permission to hunt on their land, a privilege not many enjoy. He often took his sons there so they could hunt the same things he had growing up. This was an area they were intimately familiar with, and not some random patch of woods they up and decided to explore. September 19th, 2004 was a clear, windy day with mild temperatures, and Robert took his sons to Black Canyon in the Bighorn Mountains. At the time, Colton was 13 years old, and while I am not sure about Brent, I believe they are close in age. The trip into the mountains went smoothly, and the next day began like any other. They agreed to separate for the boys to drive Elk into the canyon, where their father would be waiting, so Robert ventured off in the heavy woods with only a bow and some arrows for protection while his sons went their way. Both boys returned without issue that afternoon, but their father was nowhere to be seen. They waited for hours, sometimes honking the truck horn in hopes of getting his attention, but they were sure he would arrive at any moment. The idea he could be lost was simply unthinkable, but they contacted the Bighorn County Sheriff's Office and tribe members once it got dark. Soon, the mountains were swarming with infrared helicopters, dogs, and trackers on foot, and even horseback but nothing was found. There was no sign of Robert or his gear. The search continued for weeks without any progress, and they were forced to call it off when the bad weather set in. The FBI believed foul play to be involved, but without evidence, they were powerless to act. Even though the official search was over, his family continued looking for several more weeks, but sadly, they too would be forced to accept the inevitable. A whole year passed without new information until October 2005, when a random hunter would be in the same area while trekking through a particularly dense section of forest. He heard what he thought was a woman's scream, but quickly realized it was a crow. At first, the hunter ignored it, but eventually the shrieking piqued the man's curiosity. He followed the sound to a clearing where he saw a tree that seemed to have been snapped in half by a storm. The crow was sitting on the broken stump and the hunter claimed it stopped squawking when they made eye contact. He goes on to say the bird stared at him for a moment before looking down to the fallen tree, and this caused the hunter to look in that direction. That's when he found Robert. At the base of the fallen tree were a few bones, a partial skull, a pair of boots, a rolled-up belt, and a folded jacket. His wallet still contained cash, his ID, and even his social security card but they weren't weather-damaged. Now terrified, the hunter fled the area to alert authorities. He led the sheriff back to the site, which would only be 50 yards from where Robert and his sons had made their base camp the previous year. This was not unsearched territory. All the evidence was carefully collected for testing, and considering how the items were laid out, foul play was immediately suspected. DNA confirmed the remains belonged to Robert Springfield, and for a short time, the FBI believed he might have been shot. But ultimately, they announced the fallen tree crushed him. This conclusion did not go over well, and to even add more insult to injury, the FBI would not release the victim's body. The family was forced to sue to give Robert a proper burial. There are many issues with the falling tree theory. Let's imagine this play out. The man is down in the canyon, waiting for his sons to send the elk his way, When suddenly the tree falls, why were his belt and other items removed if they killed him instantly? If it pinned him to the ground in a way, he was able to remove them, for whatever reason, why didn't he scream for help? Falling trees can be loud, but his sons never heard a thing, and they weren't that far away. Plus, neither scenario answers why he would be separated from his weapon. The jacket could have been removed for several reasons but the belt and boots, not so much. We could poke holes in the tree theory all day, but what actually happened? One could argue that most of his bones were taken by wildlife, but it feels like quite a stretch to say the rest of his clothes deteriorated to nothing in only a year, even exposed to the elements. Even today, this case remains a complete mystery. No one can think of a scenario that answers each question. Robert's wife wonders if he was murdered and if his body was only disposed of after the search. But that couldn't be proven either. His death certificate was finally released on November 16, 2007, and the cause of death was listed as undetermined. While most 411 cases have a prevailing theory or two, I couldn't find many for this one. When body parts are found in previously searched areas, it tends to put a kink in the usual guesswork. Some believed the crow was Robert's spirit, trying to lead the hunter to his remains. But that's about it. Though, if these things were easy to figure... Though, if these things were easy to figure out, we probably wouldn't be talking about them. What about you guys? Do you have any ideas? Because I would love to hear them in the comments. Tom Messick The following case is about a hunter named Tom Messick from Troy, New York. He was an 82-year-old veteran on a hunting trip with his family, and a YouTube channel called The Lore Lodge did a pretty good documentary on it if you want to check them out later. They are friends of the channel as well, so I'd highly recommend it. At his advanced age, Tom was half blind, half deaf, and barely mobile. He could get around at home, but a hike through the woods pushed his limit to the extreme. Why was he out there, you ask? Well, family tradition. They went every single year. This year, they wanted to try a new spot and traveled to Lily Pond Road in Brant Lake, New York. It's about two miles from the main road, so it was isolated, but they weren't exactly in the middle of nowhere. There are houses all over the lake. People live in the area. It was already 10 a.m. when they began hunting, and much like the Springfields from our first case, these guys split up into two groups. There were three other elderly gentlemen besides Tom, and they spread out in a line roughly a hundred yards apart while the three younger, more fit members of the group hiked around a large hill with the intent of chasing deer to their doom. Tom and the others could not see one another, but everyone was able to communicate over walkie-talkies. One notable thing that the family and friends would later recall is that the forest was silent from when they arrived to when they left. No one heard any birds, squirrels, or insects. Being experienced hunters, the party recognized this was a warning sign, but since there were seven of them and no grizzly bears in the area, they weren't overly concerned. Aside from that detail, everything seemed completely normal as the afternoon progressed, but they never saw a single deer. By 3pm, they were ready to call it quits and head back to the campsite, which was only two miles away from Brant Lake. Everyone immediately agreed and made their way back, But Tom didn't return. Assuming he didn't hear his walkie-talkie, they walked to where he had been hunting, but there was no sign of him or his gear. At one point, a few of the party members said they heard something they couldn't quite identify. One said it sounded like a car door being slammed, but that theory is widely discredited. There is only a tiny dirt road leading to their location, and if a vehicle had approached, it would have been heard by everyone as would a scream or a gunshot. One of the reasons I enjoyed the Lore Lodge documentary was because those guys drove to this area and one walked 100 yards into the forest while the other stayed behind. When the first one yelled for help, he was easily heard. It's hard to imagine someone, or something, could sneak up on Tom without anyone else hearing this encounter. By 4.30, the forest rangers began the official search and at seven, when it started to grow dark, Half of the group stayed and continued looking for Tom. In contrast, the other half returned to alert his family and file a report with the authorities. The search began the next day, with 13 search-and-rescue professionals from the Park Service, and over the following weeks, that number would rise to more than 300 from 15 agencies. Even with the assistance of divers, dogs, and helicopters, not so much as Tom's walkie-talkie was ever found. Theories began to run wild but nothing seemed to answer every loose end. How could Tom have just wandered off if the man could barely get around? By all accounts, Tom was an experienced survivalist. His wife, Beverly, feared foul play more than anything. She was positive he wouldn't have wandered off, but even if he had, she was equally sure he would have left clues behind. He knew several things to do in such a scenario. They would have found cloth-tied strips around trees and other signs. The FBI becoming involved on the fourth day was considered unusual, since they usually don't investigate these kinds of missing cases unless it happens on federal land. They told Beverly something was not right with the case, but they weren't sure what, and to this day they have never given further elaboration. If wildlife had played a part, his possessions would have been left behind, and it's very hard to imagine a struggle took place, and unnoticed, unless most of all of the hunting party was in on the conspiracy which, if they were, six people keeping a secret this big for this long under such scrutiny is somewhat unbelievable itself. According to one local man interviewed in the Lore Lodge documentary, there are rumors that Tom had a brother disappear in the same forest under suspiciously similar circumstances. If that is indeed true, both men could very well be in the Bahamas as we speak, but I wasn't able to find further claims of Miss but I wasn't able to find any further claims of a missing brother beyond this documentary, so I'll let you make of that what you will. Some don't believe Tom was ever in the woods, considering not one piece of evidence was left behind to place him there. But again, I find it challenging to believe six people would hold a one lie together for this long. Given the lack of logical explanations, one can only wonder if something unnatural may have occurred. With Tom's body never being found and his possessions missing, the alternate universe theory is prevalent in this case. Thanks to Marvel, you're probably all familiar with the multiverse theory, and this is essentially the same thing. This is the belief that there's another world close to ours but different in minor yet critical ways, and sometimes it's possible for people to accidentally cross over into said universe. The Mandela effect also operates under this theory, If you think Nelson Mandela died in prison, or the Bernstein Bears have a different name, I suggest you Google that one later. The point is, the case of Tom Messick looks very much like a man who vanished into thin air. Is it possible someone is lying, and we don't know the true story? Absolutely, but given what we have, I don't know what to say. It's a tough one. Kurt Newton. Before we discuss other 411 theories, let's talk about the last case. It's the hardest. This isn't a grown man who decided to go on a hunting trip. This is a helpless, four year old little boy named Kurt. It takes place on August 31st, 1975, when Ronald and Jill Newton took their two children camping over Labor Day weekend. The family lived in Manchester, Maine and traveled to Natanus Point Campground, the Chain of Ponds Township, only a few miles away from the main Quebec border. It rained a lot over the weekend, but the family didn't let that bother them. They were having a wonderful time. Three other families were also camping in the area. They weren't the only ones out there. No one can be certain of which of the two witnesses were the last one to see Kurt, but sightings occurred between 10 and 11 on Sunday morning. Jill was washing his muddy shoes while Ronald collected firewood and six-year-old Kimberly played. A neighboring camper claims to have seen the boy riding his tricycle, calling for his father, and an 11-year-old child named Llewellyn also saw him riding the trike. She asked him where his parents were, but Kurt didn't respond. Less than an hour later, Mr. Hansen, a volunteer caretaker, and Llewellyn's father, discovered the small bike on a steep rise at a dump site just under a mile away. The bike wasn't damaged, and since Kurt had yet to be reported as missing, the discovery didn't raise any alarms. While this was taking place, Jill was beginning to worry. In a later interview, she said she had gone only 10 minutes when she hung Kurt's sneakers over a line and realized his tricycle was missing. At first, she thought he followed the men to collect firewood, but they returned without him. That's when she met up with Mr. Hansen and learned Kurt's bike was found at the dump site. She knew someone had taken him. Kurt had always been terrified of traveling into the forest. Kimberly loved to explore the woods behind their home in Manchester, and she often teased her brother for standing at the edge of the lawn, too frightened to venture further. They raced to the dump site, and sure enough, there was Kurt's trike, but the child was nowhere to be found. The campground owner reported Kurt missing at 12.22 that afternoon, and the most extensive search in Maine's history began. Thousands of volunteers participated. They covered a five-mile radius of the campsite. Every road and trail were searched multiple times along with the dump site and its surrounding area. But even with helicopters and bloodhounds, there wasn't much to find. Given the muddy conditions, they expected to find the boys' footprints, but that didn't work out either. On the 31st, just before nightfall, Jill thought she heard the voice of a child in the woods near the dump and she called out to Kurt for 15 minutes, but never received an answer. Of course, there's no way to know if she just imagined it, but under the circumstances, it feels unlikely. So many resources were focused on that specific area, including the dogs, it's hard to believe he wouldn't have been found. Temperatures fell below freezing that night and knowing the boy couldn't survive without shelter, Ronald and friends continued calling for him through sunrise without success. On that second day, dogs caught a brief scent of Kurt's pajamas, but nothing more. Unfortunately, things would only get harder for the Newton family when Ronald fell into a deep gully and hurt his ankle during the search. It turned purple and swelled up to twice its size, but he still refused to quit. After ignoring the doctor's order to rest, friends became desperate for his well-being and drugged his coffee with tranquilizers. On his fourth night without sleep, Ronald finally passed out with a loudspeaker still pressed to his lips. Many described him as the most formidable man they knew and were simply in awe of his determination. No stone was left unturned, holes large enough for a child to crawl in were dug up, the ice house next to the camping office was dismantled, and the dump was bulldozed. But still, they had nothing. The search was officially called off September 12th, while interviewing every camper, One woman claimed to have seen a white station wagon at the campground shortly before Kurt went missing. It drove away so fast it left a cloud of dust behind. No cars matching the description had been registered at the park, and no other witnesses had seen them. At the time, investigators hadn't suspected foul play. They thought the child wandered off and got lost, but Kurt's parents believed he had been abducted and possibly taken into Canada. The family remained for two more weeks before returning home to Manchester without their son. Two years later, when Kurt was old enough to start school, the Newtons mailed missing posters to every school district in the country, a process that took over six months and cost over $5,000. While some schools responded with pictures of children resembling Kurt, they still couldn't find him. The list of possible sightings recorded is nearly endless, and though each one was investigated, Kurt was never found. In 2017, this case came back into the limelight when a woman claimed to be Jennifer Klein, a child who went missing in Utah when she was three years old in 1974. She said she was abducted by a satanic cult, who also was responsible for Kurt and another missing child. But obviously, this turned out to—but obviously, this turned out to be a hoax. So I ask you, what the hell happened to this kid? If wildlife were involved there would have been traces of blood and other obvious signs. Did he wander into a different dimension? Did someone snatch him and speed away? Considering this happened so close to the Canadian border, some question of a Wendigo could be involved. Wendigos are often mistaken for werewolves, but their hunger is insatiable, and they are always looking for their next meal. Though I fail to see how the tricycle would find its way to the dump, it could explain why Jill believed her son was in the woods that day. Wendigos are thought to mimic human voices to lure their prey into an isolated area, similar to skimwalkers. Now, we are in no way saying that a Wendigo is involved here, but this is one of the popular theories that we have found online. We don't have enough information to say what happened in these cases definitively. Did they all fall victim to the same fate? Could there be an entirely different kind of monster out there that we don't even know about yet? Hell, some people say the cartel is to blame. You could spend months on Reddit and the internet sifting through the different theories. I haven't found one that answers every loose end, but that doesn't mean that we have to stop looking. That's all for tonight, but what do you think? Would you guys want to hear more of these? Either way, let me know in the comments, we can make this a thing if it's something you're into. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Hit that like button and subscribe if you're new. I upload new episodes almost every single day in all things natural and supernatural. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please be sure to give us a five-star rating over there as it helps us grow on those platforms, and is very much appreciated. If you're on the go and don't have YouTube Premium but want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and just about everywhere else you find your favorite scary stories online.